You're listening to This Rhetorical Life, a podcast dedicated to the practice, pedagogy, and public circulation of rhetoric in our lives. Okay, everyone, this is part two of our interview with Ira Shore, well known for his work in composition and rhetoric, and an important theorist and practitioner of critical pedagogy and critical literacy. Go to This Rhetorical Life's website or to iTunes to find part one of our conversation, where Shore talks about growing up in the Bronx, his early experiments with critical pedagogy, and his relationship and collaborations with Paulo Freire. Part two of the interview will focus on updates to critical pedagogy, including some of Shore's most recent experiments in the classroom. We also talk a lot about movement work, about the pedagogies of movements, about the role that educators play and might play, and about what Shore has been doing both inside and outside of formal academic institutions. Once again, we let the tape run and give you a largely unedited interview. We have in mind an audience who is familiar with Shore and critical pedagogy, but may be interested in some of the personal details and specific points that Shore raises here that may not be available elsewhere. And once again, a tiny chorus of zebra finches make up the background noise for our conversation. We hope you enjoy it. So, we've heard a, a bit about your entry into critical pedagogy, and rather than like it having a like really strict definition, we, we see the definition um, sort of moving from like blundering through traditional curriculum to then experimenting with less traditional curriculum to this idea of introducing self-reflection as an entry point. Um, you spoke about diagrammatic history, um, this idea of problem posing, using everyday life as material. And I guess what I want to ask now is so how has that definition of critical pedagogy shifted over time as it starts to intersect with third world feminisms or uh, black feminist theory, uh, intersectionality and in movement work. I'm thinking a lot about, now that when you mentioned the nurse, I'm thinking a lot about that moment in relation to Bell Hooks meeting um, Paulo Freire and, and him identifying as a, sort of a white man that's sort of at the face of critical pedagogy. And then the, the two of you um, as iconic and critical pedagogy as white men, sort of how has that shifted critical pedagogy for you in the present time? Uh, yes, I think that uh, there is, we now understand critical pedagogies. And uh, this was uh, presented to us and named uh, by two uh, Australian uh, educators uh, in the early 90s who did a, a book length treatment and they, they made it plural. So there, there's not one way to do critical pedagogy, there are multiple ways, and that, that, that matters to, to be said. The other uh, key idea is the, my, my understanding of what uh, Paulo Freire meant by situated pedagogy, that every pedagogy had to be adapted to the material conditions that we were offering it in. So they, whereas we, we can agree on uh, some general orientations for a critical teacher, for a critical pedagogy class. For example, general orientations would be questioning the status quo, being uh, very interested in social justice. And by social justice, I mean democracy, a uh, special orientation to democracy, equality, ecology, and peace. That's how I understand uh, my commitments to social justice. So. For me, what lies behind my choices in, uh, in teaching for social justice is to what extent can I uh, make democracy concrete? To what extent can I push forward uh, equality? And to what extent can I raise awareness about uh, the toxic threats to planet Earth? And, um, and uh, so the, um, uh, that's, that's I, I'm describing these as the general orientations we can pose to everyone who wants to think about being a critical teacher. 
but then we all teach in very different situations. We teach at different levels. Some are K-8, some are 9 to 12, some are in the uh, public school system, some are in private school system, some are in community colleges like I started, some are in uh, four-year liberal arts colleges, some are in graduate school, some are in union programs that meet what we call non-formal education. They're not formally uh, set up by the state as an institution, but uh, uh, community or um, uh, labor organizations set up these uh, education uh, programs. Uh, sometimes they um, they have to do with uh, churches, ch uh, progressive churches setting up education programs. In any event, first thing we have to make contact with is the uh, the situation that we're we're entering and what 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 kind of context are we teaching in and for, and we have to then educate ourselves into the context. Now I. I followed this intuitively when I got to Staten Island in 1971, and that's how I uh, drifted away from teaching grammar and started uh, teaching about the, the, the everyday themes of the students and using developing different language grids that began with the, the, way, uh, the way they spoke and so on. I, in, I intuited this. Over the years, I understood more and more how important uh, situated pedagogy is uh, really uh, being uh, very embedded in the everyday life of the students, not, not just in, in the content, the subject matter, or the themes that you use or present to the students, but also uh, that um, uh, understanding from Paulo Freire why he was always skeptical about university intellectuals undertaking the job of critical pedagogy. Paulo Freire said several times that he would rather begin with um, uneducated uh, peasants and illiterates uh, to be trained as the um, facilitators of the, uh, of the literacy uh, classes than with university intellectuals because the university intellectuals brought so much uh, baggage with them that we, we already were so filled with, uh, with official knowledge that and, and we were taught that to be a good teacher is to deliver that knowledge as uh, comprehensively as possible to any group of students in front of us. And so that the tendency to lecture was so powerfully um, embedded in the university graduates that uh, we had a lot of trouble overcoming that to become dialogic educators which lear who learned how to pose problems, listen to the answers, and, and to work with the, uh, the, um, the expressive beginnings that the students offered us as the way they saw the world and posed questions to that. That's what I began to understand as a, a very important um, problem of doing uh, critical um, of doing uh, critical pedagogy. Uh, in addition, the uh, other thing is is that the political conditions not only change from place to place. That is, some places are more open to allowing teachers to experiment. Some places are very rigid and very very punitive and repressive. So that we had to adjust to the political climate or the political uh, profile around us, uh, and is that political? Uh, but that political climate was not only a um, a function of place where we were teaching; it was also a function of time. Because I've been doing this for so long now that I actually began at a very insurgent and hopeful moment of mass movements on the rise in America, which greatly uh, affected m my ability to practice and test. And, and learn how to do this critical pedagogy. That was the early 70s when there were so many uh, movements in motion to transform society. So now I'm teaching in one of the most reactionary and conservative uh, periods. We've had neoliberalism for over 30 years. We've had one uh, conservative um, regime after another in the White House and Tea Party uh, eruptions in Congress and so on. So I'm now teaching 40 years later in one of the most restrictive environments. So if I don't notice that and adjust my pedagogy, then I'm not a very good critical teacher because my pedagogy is, can only accomplish what the, what, the, the pos what the situation allows or what the possibilities of any situation present themselves. So I have to keep, keep up with reading a changing situation, a changing political climate, and then do what Paulo Freire uh, explained. He called it untested feasibility. That uh, given the, uh, the variations in time and place uh, that present uh, di uh, different material conditions or different situations in which we design a concrete political practice for where we are, then how do we, we keep getting more and more familiar with what's possible and then con continue to... to um, how should I put it? 
enable ourselves to continue to take risks. That is, this is what this was one chapter that we uh, talked about in the book we did together: the fear of doing critical pedagogy, the fear of taking risks, or fear of punishment, or the fear of being uh, illegible to the students that we were addressing. Uh, and that, from Paulo Ferry's point of view, that uh, the status quo had a tremendous interest convincing us that the amount of open space around us was maybe about three feet in a circle around us. And to make us see uh, the space for uh, experimenting, the space for trying something different, the space in our uh, situation for questioning the status quo to appreciate it as smaller than it actually is. And it was his estimation that we can only f uh, figure out wh uh, what space was actually available by taking a risk and, and doing an experiment and pushing beyond the apparent limits of the, of the space and time that we were in. So this is what he called untested feasibility, that something more is feasible or possible than we, can, we see or that we're allowed to notice given the, en the enormous representation of the, of the dominant political climate to us of, of what is possible, what is good, and what exists and that we had to imagine ourselves beyond that limit, that borderline, and, and come up, invent practices that went beyond, uh, beyond that limit, and then observe, observe very honestly what the, the impact uh, was. And I, I was doing that intuitively when I, I brought the, um, the project of uh, the, uh, the, the trial of the gay teacher to my uh, class, and working with Paulo over the next 10 to 15 years, clarify what, what situated pedagogy faced, uh, given the strong uh, influences of the status quo in making us conservative, in making us fearful of, of questioning it. So could you give us an, a one example of critical pedagogy practice in your classroom today? And also, how has your work with students changed or stayed the same? From the beginning, because I started teaching in a uh, very insurgent moment uh, in American life in 1971, for me, the women's movement was very, very active then, and so was uh, the black liberation movement. So from the beginning, I kept bringing in uh, themes about racism and about uh, patriarchy and sexual equality from, from the, uh, the beginning because of the political time. Uh, what I uh, also experimented with was um, trying to notice um, uh, how the representations of the world to the students that were circulating uh, dominantly in their lives. I'll give you an example of what this means. That I, I began to study the, every, the newspapers that the students read and uh, figuring out how to pose the newspaper as a meaningful problem to them. So I began to uh, zero in on that every newspaper had a business section that uh, was called something different. Um, the New York Times had a whole business uh, section that I would bring in, but so did the other major dailies around here and so on. So I would bring in all, uh, I bring in the newspapers and I would show the students the different sections and then I would pose this kind of uh, problem. I said, okay, uh, why, why does every newspaper have a, a business section but doesn't, no newspaper has a labor news section? Uh, how would you explain that? So, of course, no one had ever asked this question before to the students. I had never asked that question in any class, so I began to pose that question. And so it, what evolved from that uh, problem posed to students was a, um, a, a project where the students, I invited the students to write or to design or invent or compose a labor news section that would fit into uh, their daily newspaper that didn't yet exist. And what the projects, the classes came up with were very interesting. And I, I asked them if I could send it off to the local daily newspaper, the Staten Island Advance, to the editor there to get a response. I did send it off, and the editor was very slow in responding. The class ended before that semester before I could send it back, but eventually got the letter, and I sent it to him. And the editor, of course, was uh, very unimpressed, and he thought that uh, this was the wrong question to ask about the... Um, about the, the way they, they, uh, they cover news. I, I Xeroxed his, his letter to me, and then I had everyone's address, and I sent around his answer so that even, this is another thing, that class might end, class doesn't end when the semester ends, that sometimes I found myself contacting the students afterwards because there was a, a trailing, um, uh, trailing um, work. Uh, now, in, uh, um, the, in, in my, cur in my current uh, critical uh, writing classes, 
I've been trying a, a two experiments uh, that uh, interest me a lot, and I'm trying to refine them and get them to work better. One is to, um, because the way uh, the dialogic pedagogy asks the teacher to pose problems and provoke um, inquiry and not to deliver lectures that students uh, receive passively, um, I'm trying to test how to use uh, quantitative databases as problem-posing materials uh, and then uh, ask, uh, have activities where the students develop visual representations of like uh, line graphs and bar charts and pie charts and data charts of all kinds and then look at the way numbers the and figure out what I call the stories in the numbers. That is to read a, um, a data chart and then to write a prose rendition of what the data chart shows us in one singular visual image. How would you, how would you then write what we're being told there? This has been a very interesting uh, project because it works from visual literacy to uh, textual literacy, so it's, it's a whole new dimension of the critical pedagogy I'm practicing, but also something else is going on that what I discovered in doing it is that I can say to the class that data never interprets itself. Data says, look out the window and here's something about what's going on in the world. And data, there's no uh, narrative involved in, in any chart about why is it like this? What does it mean? Where did it come from? Is it good or bad that we have this? How is it going to develop in the next few years? If we had to come up with a policy that might affect its uh, development this way or that way, what would we say needs to be done about it? And so on. So I began to develop all these uh, problem-posing questions based on the interpretation of data. So the first problem was is that uh, can you do careful observation and actually say what the data chart is telling us? Can we all agree on, this, on the story being told? by this, uh, this database. So uh, I did not start the class by interpreting the databases for the student and giving, and giving them one, one uh, version of it. I hand out the database and then I pose a problem about it and then everybody works on it and they, and they produce a written text as, uh, that represents their understanding of what this single page, this visual image of the quantitative data means. Then they report to each other, they report out loud and we begin to have a discussion who's uh, writing about uh, whose observation is seems to be the uh, the best take on the uh, the database. Then the, then I always say uh, that's step one, and now comes step two, which data will never do for you. That is, how do you interpret what it means, why it's like this, where it came from, how did it get like this, what needs to be done because of it, is it good for us or bad for us, who does it help, who does it hurt, all the value questions that databases uh, never include in their uh, numerical uh, rep representation. This has been extremely interesting. Uh, so it's, it's posed a whole new uh, direction for me to, uh, to uh, trace. And so that's what I've been working on the last uh, bunch of years. And then uh, the, um, uh, the next thing is um, to figure out a, uh, a problem uh, that's located um, two ways. One inside their experience and one outside their experience. The one inside their experience has to do with what happens to working class young people who go through college and try to uh, convert their educational achievements into economic gains. What happens? There are plenty of databases that tell us this. So now their fate and their conditions are all captured in databases of various kinds. And uh, they uh, don't have uh, this reading in it. So I bring in a bunch of uh, databases that talk about the, um, uh, the fate of young people in the job market over the last 30 years. What's been happening in terms of hum, uh, how many college grads are uh, uh, being hired here for what in different regions of the country, what kind of uh, starting salaries uh, they get, what kind of career ladder they have. So all this is very deeply embedded in the difficult struggles they're having to pay for college and also to get it through college while they're working. And uh, this now represents to them, um, here is your relationship to where this is all going to lead. And we this class just that I'm teaching now just wrote their first paper on it. And... Uh, you know, I can't help but tell you that it's, of course, making this kind of contact with what's going on in the economy, it's, it shocks them to see the difficulty that young people are having in the job market. Some of them have been intuiting it and worrying about it, but it has never been so concretely um, intimate to them as when all the numbers show exactly 
what's going. This gives me the opportunity then to say, okay, look, for the last 30 or 40 years, the starting salary of young people uh, graduating from college has been either flat or declining. And many jobs that once were done by high school grads are now being offered only to college grads, even though the jobs haven't changed. But all the unemployment means that uh, the data shows us is that um, college uh, students are available to do the jobs, and high school students are the one, high school grads only are the ones suffering. So I said, how do you explain that, um, I bring in data about uh, national wealth, how do you explain that we, we are far, far wealthier than we've ever been as a society? We've never had such vast wealth accumulating in our society. How do you explain that uh, with the fact that um, the, uh, the starting salaries of college grads has been flat or declining in the last 30 years at the same time that our economy or the work that folks are doing is producing an enormous increase in wealth. So, you know, I pose that question. I am not delivering a lecture on that question. I have plenty of uh, ideas about why that's happened, but my job is to pose the question and draw the students out and continue to provide background that uh, enables them to understand this contradiction that we've never been wealthier and the position of college grads has never been more precarious. So how does a society produce that contradiction? What, what's behind it? So part of this uh, project now leads into a, uh, into a study of uh, the billionaire Warren Buffett who made a very spectacular claim about eight, nine, ten years ago where he announced that class warfare is underway in America and it's his class the, uh, the super rich who are making war on everybody else, and his class is winning. He made that declaration in 2006 in a column, uh, an interview in the New York Times, which I have in Xerox, and I present it, I bring it in as a text for study into class. And, I, uh, and uh, Warren Buffett, the most uh, successful capitalist in American history, is uh, now announcing that class warfare by his class against the rest of us is underway and his class is definitely winning. So I asked him, is, is he right? Is, is Warren Buffett right uh, that the, his class are, are waging war and he's uh, winning? So some students then raise their hand and they say, is Warren Buffett a communist? So I say, no, no, he's a capitalist. He's the most successful capitalist that what we know and it causes them a lot of confusion that uh, leading capitalists would uh, draw such uh, high-profile attention to a concept such as class, war class warfare. Now, I hope you folks know that I have no lecture that I deliver on any of these topics, that I present these material and pose questions. Then we examine the data that Warren Buffett presents through several items. I bring in a series of articles written by Buffett and other people about the data that Buffett is using to make that claim. And I ask the class to judge how uh, convincing Buffett is in making his case uh, using the data that he chooses, and is there other data elsewhere that either can question Buffett or undermine his claim or support his claim? So that I bring in a bunch of other data, and then we we go on a research project to try to figure out uh, could we think of gentrification as I pose this question: Is gentrification a form of class war? It's nothing to do with Buffett because Buffett is only talking about the tax structure. So now I want to do what. Um, uh, this is what Paulo Freire uh, 40, uh, 50 years ago called the hinged theme or a hinged generative theme. That is, you begin in one area and you begin to fan out and try to uh, apply it elsewhere and see uh, what kind of inquiry or connections you can make of it. So while uh, Buffett is only raising questions about the unequal tax structure and how his class, he, the data he provides, he says he, he earns $46 million a year and he pays 17% tax. His secretary, who he pays $60,000 a year, pays 33% tax. So he says, how can this be fair that my secretary is paying twice the tax rate that I am, and so on. So that's, that's the, uh, the, the data that he provides. So then I start bringing in other situations like gentrification and the, um, the housing market. And the problem with the students in my class is that none, none of them can afford their own apartments in New York City. They're all f young adults who are forced to continue living at home because the a housing market has uh, gone, through, gone through the roof. And then I bring in articles about, uh, about that. Then I bring in articles about uh, gentrification also displacing small business people, like mom and pop stores and luncheonettes in gentrifying neighborhoods are evicted because uh, Starbucks wants to move into this, these uh, very choice spaces where they can uh, um, um, 
produce so much revenue. So then I move it to a different class. So I said, uh, well, how about these folks? So now the question is, uh, folks who run small businesses, they're not working class people. They're a different class than the, uh, the folks that work for Warren Buffett, the secretary, and so on. So then I invite them to study, like, uh, how do we name the different classes? And I, I um, present them with a four, uh, grid of four names where I ask them to develop the definitions of different social classes. I do not present them with a lecture on how to do it, but it's a grid with four spaces. It's another visual diagram I use that I developed in the last 10 years under this new this new test that I'm doing. And it lists uh, typical names of four classes, like the poor, the working class, the middle class, the rich class, and so on. And then they develop their characterizations of how they understand each of these. Then we, we discuss it in class. We develop different characterizations. I combine them. I propose the synthesis to the class, and we debate what kind of stuff, uh, what kind of uh, definitions make sense. Then I bring in articles about different people and I ask them which class would they categorize these people on given the way they develop their own categories. So now I ask them to go out into the world, look at examples and, ca and use their own structures then to uh, make sense of the, of the world that's happening around them. So this is what I've been doing lately in critical pedagogy, which I hadn't done like in the early decade or so, trying to use the databases and a different theme. Is there a distinction between critical pedagogy in the classroom versus a critical pedagogy on the streets, or how does um, the relationship between critical, critical pedagogy and movement building work? Um, and we're thinking, in terms of movements, we're thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement um, and, all, and then the campus-based movements that are happening. So we are seeing the movements sort of coming onto university campuses, but what about the classroom? What's possible in the classroom in terms of critical pedagogy and movement work? And is there a distinction between doing critical pedagogy in the classroom and the street? Uh, yes, uh, Paulo Freire wanted to impress on me that the, the most important place for critical pedagogy was outside of the classroom in movements. And he, you, if you read the chapters in uh, Pedagogy for Liberation we did together, you'll see that he makes that statement that um, you know, this was 30 years ago, so I was trying to uh, emphasize uh, classroom work because I travel around and I was doing workshops for teachers all around the country. So I wanted to keep the focus on what's possible inside what I call formal education. Those are state-regulated educational institutions that uh, have a lot of bureaucratic machinery like transcripts, like final exams, like tests, like attendance records and so on. But uh, that's formal education, state regulated. Then we have um, non-formal education, which I mentioned might be in church basements, community organizations, or um, uh, living rooms of people, or uh, labor organizations run classes. And then there are movements that begin to sponsor educational forums and educational seminars, and uh, we had many, many of these when I was a student radical in the 60s and early, se uh, early 70s, that uh, we started a, um, a free university at the University of Wisconsin. We started uh, other forums, but a bunch of people did. And what we did is we brought in people we knew that could talk about the topics that were really crucial to us that we couldn't get in the classroom. So uh, this was happening all the time. And then, you know, uh, all through the 70s, free, free universities, free schools, alternate schools, new learning alliance networks began to emerge that uh, even Illich uh, spoke about a lot in, the, in his book at that time that was very popular called Deschooling uh, Society and so on. So there's no question that uh, all of this uh, critical uh, literacy and critical pedagogy can take takes place outside in movements, also in organizational forms that are not state-regulated. Paulo Freire thought these were the most important places for this pedagogy to be practiced. Inside formal education, bureaucratic structures, institutions with all their machinery, many of us who uh, are there, many of us who are there find that there are a lot of restrictions because we're, uh, we're expected to enforce a standard pedagogy, a dominant dialect, and uh, a mandated uh, textbook, a uh, orthodox reading list, and so on, and that when we don't, we're considered renegades and not true citizens of our disciplines and departments, and we get punished for that. So in a sense, it's... Um, like Galileo said in uh, Bertolt Brecht's uh, play that, you know, when you cross the, cross the border, you have to bring uh, the documents in under your coat. 
on, you know, you have to wear a big coat that you can hide the document under that uh, the uh, the Vatican doesn't want you circulating and so on. That's Bert, that's Galileo and that play. So you know, uh, we many of us uh, you know sneak it in or do it. And now for me, I don't have a problem because I'm so, uh, my age. I'm tenured. I'm a white man. I'm tall, and uh, so uh, everybody ignores me because uh, uh, it's they just figure there's nothing they can do about me. They tried to get rid of me in the first year when I started. Um, my I would there was an attempt to fire me in the first semester at the college, and there was a pretty big battle, and my job was saved by one vote in 1972. And after that, um, I there wasn't a threat anymore of me getting uh, fired, um, and so on. So, and at this age, of course, you know, being so senior, uh, I don't face the threats and punishment that uh, young women are extremely vulnerable because uh, they're not, they don't carry authority into the classroom the way male bodies carry authority into the classroom. I walk into the classroom, I'm tall, I'm white, I'm male, I got gray hair. Uh, everybody waits for me to, everybody expects me to take charge. So owning authority is easiest for somebody like me, for a body like I carry around. It's very hard for uh, women, young women. It's very hard for dark-skinned folks, and especially dark-skinned women. Uh, their authority is constantly challenged. So I understand that where we that uh, that the the uh, ability to uh, to invite students into this pedagogy uh, is, um, is is very variable depending on all kinds of situations, including the body of the teacher who's trying to do it, as well as the institution the teacher is doing it. Now, once you leave formal education and you go into a labor union program, there's different, there's different restrictions. You might have a, uh, what's called a business union. That is, they're very preoccupied with not rocking the boat for the employers that they work. And so they'll be hostile to raising critical questions in their labor program. Some will not be. So I have sometimes worked with uh, labor educators, and some of them... I, I heard, I got a letter that uh, my uh, books were being used in a brown lung uh, project in, in miners, in, in the Mine Workers Union, which I was very surprised. So, you know, they, that some places are, are open, more open. So this is the question of how, what's the opening? What's the possibilities in your time and in, in place? Some places are very closed and you can't raise any questions. I was asked to come out to, uh, there was this community uh, project out in Michigan, I was asked to come out there and give a couple of days forums for folks. And it was a lot of different uh, places, a lot of different organizations that had the fire department, the police department. They were trying to come up with some kind of community project. And I discovered that the restrictions were so severe that I couldn't really propose any critical uh, attitude. Like I asked the firemen, they kept wanting me to tell them how to stop all the fires in poor people's houses. This was the problem the firemen put on the table during those few days. So they and they brought me in the expert to try to tell them how to stop poor people from burning down their own houses. So I looked at them. I said, "Well, what, what, what? Are, why are there fires? What's causing the fires in the poor people's houses?" They said, "Well, he said they uh, they uh, they got bad uh, furnaces. So what they do is is they they run these electric heaters and they put like eight plugs in one outlet and all the things go on fire, you know, and stuff like that. Or they use their oven." you know, to heat up the house, and that's the only heat they got for the winter. I said, okay, the answer is, is to have like a fuel fund, a heating fund where everybody is guaranteed heat all winter and the fires will stop. Like, they wanted me to come up with an education program that would teach poor people not to plug eight things into one outlet. It's like, forget about it. I mean, what, they have no, that's the material conditions. They got to do it. So uh, after a couple of days, I realized I was of no use out there. So this is what I mean. You get into a time and place where the restrictions on the discourse of what can be said, what can be questioned, are so narrow that you can't function. And this is what Paulo Freire understood, which makes a very important distinction in why critical pedagogy uh, is different than standard pedagogy. It's something like this, that uh, while we have general orientations and how we think we can develop critical literacy, it's not at all clear that this pedagogy can be practiced anywhere. See, like if I go to graduate school and I get a PhD in literature, I'm graduated, I give them the PhD, and I'm certified that any university in America can hire me, and I'll, I'll arrive with all of the bank of knowledge needed to distribute to all the students because I've collected it from someplace far away and I've been certified with a PhD. So I'll come and I'll be asked to teach Shakespeare, or I'll be asked to teach the modern novel, 
or something like that. And I already got all that knowledge in my head, and I got to go up there and start uh, lecturing it. This has nothing to do with uh, critical pedagogy. That is, we all are expected to be extremely knowledgeable and uh, very well-informed and effective teachers. But what's possible in any situation? We may wind up teaching in a place where critical inquiry and critical literacy are not allowed where the political restrictions are so severe that we can't operate openly and so on. And we may have to, what's what I call, create the conditions for pedagogy. Creating conditions for pedagogy means that uh, the surveillance I am under as a regulated teacher in an, a bureaucratic institution are so severe that the, the, um, the syllabus is handed to me and I'm expected to uh, enforce it. So I may have to uh, sponsor a... Um, a, a series of forums uh, outside as extracurricular, extramural uh, forums uh, that raise questions. I may have to decide to use the hallways of the, uh, of the campus as, a, as an art gallery where I make um, uh, visual representations that raise questions as people walk to class and because it's not for credit, and because I'm not, I, I'm not, I don't have to give a final exam on it, that what I'm doing is I'm looking at how, what is the flow of everyday life at this institution, and how do I locate myself so that everybody has to cross paths with me and see something. I might have to take a video monitor and put it in a highly uh, frequented place and have a loop, a video loop playing every three or four minutes with raising qu critical questions about something. And it's not a class, it's not for credit, nobody has to pay tuition for it, and I'm not gonna be judged on it because uh, no one's gonna come observe me to see how well I'm teaching the mandated syllabus and so on. This is the extra syllabus, the extra curriculum, and I invent it outside because the inside is too policed for me to take it far, take it far enough. So I may reach that, con that, that conclusion had to become ingenious. It may be that in, in movements, political movements like the Black Lives Matter, that is the most freedom, like we had for the, uh, during the civil rights uh, period when they had uh, citizenship schools in the South for uh, folks, um, and now the, uh, when the Black Panthers had uh, uh, children's breakfast programs and so on, the freedom they had to pose critical questions was much greater than anybody in any formal institution could, um, could take advantage of. So that's the best place to do it. But here's the thing, that when you have a, a movement afoot outside, there's, there's, you, you ad you're addressing several different constituencies simultaneously. That is, you, you say, all right, we're going to have this forum on this topic, and you, you um, announce it. Probably you will attract uh, people who are most interested in the campaign, and they will come. And so you have to begin at the level. All of us who are this interested in the campaign are already in motion to try to make something happen. What's the next step for us? So you have to be very careful that you begin at a higher level of purpose. That is, we, we all gathered first because we want to make, we want to make a difference about this. And so let's review how we've made a difference so far. Let's review where, how we have failed and what, what's left for us to do. So that, that's how it answers the question that I think is at the foundation of critical pedagogy, which is where does subject matter come from and what do we do with it? Okay. Now, suppose you want to now go out to the community and say, look, we got this Black Lives Matters movement, and for all the folks who haven't met us yet, we want to have a public forum where uh, we meet to discuss things over. So a lot of folks are going to come who are not yet devotees or participants in the movement. So the discourse now has to be appropriate for that different, that different audience. So uh, in th th this type of, these type of the distinctions are extremely important for uh, uh, movements uh, outside of uh, institutions to be, to be clear so that they don't have a singular discourse through which they continually address different audiences. And that's, uh, that's when a movement becomes uh, illegible and boring to audiences, when it, it doesn't adjust its, uh, its discourse to uh, the audience in front of it, and also it doesn't address the discourse to the way this particular audience understands the situation, and so on. Uh, the, um, uh, the, this, this is repeated also in, pub in schools insofar as like uh, when you're teaching uh, middle school, you, you work differently than if you teach high school. So that with the differences there in audience are understood as um, appropriate levels of development for the age, the age appropriate age levels of the, of the students. When we're dealing with movements, it's, we may deal with age, like if we have a Black Panther children's breakfast program, we're addressing little kids. If we now have a community meeting for the parents, we're addressing adults. 
So the discourses have to be uh, very carefully discussed how, how, how to do that. Second thing is, is that whenever we do a uh, public <coughs> a public demonstration, the public demonstration must be understood as like a um, educational uh, activity. That is, um, what how what are the slogans that appear on the banners? This is not a casual discussion. That is, they they have to uh, faithfully represent what we what we we're after, and they also have to be understandable to a very wide audience who doesn't agree with us. That's that's what's that's what matters because now since it's in public, we're addressing the public in general. So how we um, textually represent ourselves in in um, in banners matters. The other thing is um, who who's going to be the speaker and how the speaker is going to address. Uh, address the audience. Those are all pedagogical questions that um, that that a um, that a movement has to answer, which uh, folks in uh, schools uh, don't don't get an opportunity to do. So then, how does this this idea of a, attentiveness to audience? How does that intersect with what when people are trying to achieve what might seem like disruptive? A disruptive rhetoric, or a rhetoric that's going to disrupt the status quo, or disrupt um, catering to audience, so that something can be made visible. So, which I think is very particular to the Black Lives Matter movement, right? When they disrupted Bernie Sanders, um, there's like a there's a pedagogy that they're trying to get across, or there's an education process that they're trying to get across, but it comes off as disruptive rather than catering to audience. So, how does how do those how do you negotiate those tensions? Okay, uh, look, I, uh, I think uh, Bernie Sanders has uh, responded to that, that interruption and he immediately uh, added uh, black folks to his senior staff and had black speakers at his uh, events and so on. So he got the message, he got the message and he, he, he adjusted. So I think that's, uh, that's, to his, uh, that's to his credit. What the, the, the worry I have is this. Um, all the folks who come out to hear Bernie Sanders <clears throat> will be looking for somebody who is uh, presenting an alternative point of view. That is, if they were happy with Hillary Clinton, they, they wouldn't be curious about Bernie, Bernie Sanders. So now we have to not only consider how to change Bernie Sanders so that he adjusts and includes this theme in his presentations, but also how the, the, the large audience he attracts becomes a place where uh, we approach them as, as potential allies and friends. Okay. So it's, uh, I, I watched these events and I was uh, very concerned that um, folks who came out to that, to these Bernie Sanders uh, <coughs> events that were, that were interrupted um, would, would feel um, put upon when I think they were open to hear the, the um <coughs> open to hear the, the, racial, the racial critique that the, uh, the Black Lives Matter wants to do. And uh, Bernie um, neutralized the, the possible antagonism by moving quickly to, to adjust to it. Um, I've, I've seen in the past um, a lot, uh, like, how should I put it? When you, <coughs> when you go to a, an event that's like an establishment event or an official event and you interrupt it, that's different than going to a protest event and interrupting it and demanding the platform. They're not the same thing. They're two different political interventions. Mm -hmm. That is, one, you have to treat as potential allies because I think we are all moving in the same direction, though not at the same speed and not in the same way. And another one is the establishment, the status quo, trying to consolidate itself more effectively to stay in power and so on. So if somebody is uh, on, the, on the road to like, uh, raising questions about the status quo, we, ha we have to address them as, as potential, potential allies and ask ourselves, okay, uh, they're, they're not up to speed on this, this question, and it's too important for them to ignore it. So now, what are the avenues through which we strengthen the potential alliance between us and these constituencies through which we will all become more powerful? And if I embarrass Bernie Sanders on stage and he's smart enough to know that rather than complaining, he should just alter his uh, campaign structure, his campaign organization, that's good for him and that's smart for him. At the same time, there's a large crowd of thousands of people and I now have to consider what are, what are all these potential allies thinking about 
the disruption. To, you know, they're not Bernie Sanders. They're not running for office. They don't have to be generous and accommodating. They can just feel angry and alienated and think they've been put upon and they came for an event which, is not, which uh, they're not allowed to uh, witness and they're being hijacked in a way. That, that feeling is one I think it's a very high risk thing to, uh, to, to entertain. And thinking of them as potential allies uh, changes, the, changes um, uh, the way. Now, what, uh, I, I don't want to tell folks how they, how they should do it. When I witnessed this event, I thought that, uh, that, um, that Bernie was, that the rhetorical situation involved Bernie at the platform addressing a large crowd of, poten of supporters and that Bernie was going to be uh, differently affected than the audience was going to be affected. And that count, what counts for me most is the mass affect, because we want to gain as many friends, allies, as possible. So nothing counts more than the effect we have on large groups of people gathered to try to make a change. So my question is, from your perspective in higher education, and specifically at CUNY, for several decades, what social and political responsibility do faculty have at their institutions? Um, so we've done actually a past uh, program on contingent labor, um, and we're thinking a lot about that, um, particularly as graduate students and um, even, you know, for the future in terms of the job market. But we're curious also about your thoughts on the current state of higher education and the future of writing studies. Uh, contingent labor and the adjunct labor is a disgrace in higher education and the use of contingent labor anywhere in the uh, American job market is a disgrace. It's a, one of the reasons that the 1% the percent, uh, the, uh, the owning class has been able to accumulate such vast wealth because they've uh, put uh, folks on such reduced uh, wages and part-time work and reduced the benefits and so on. So uh, this is a terrible crisis. Now, I've tried to address this crisis practically in a, f a few times. Um, CUNY, the City University of New York where I work, uh, started what they considered a model new community college. <coughs> it was called the New Community College. And it was uh, supposed to be a showcase institution where only students who could go full-time would be allowed to attend. They would be given certain economic benefits. They would be given more close mentoring and uh, guidance, counseling, and so on and so on. That, in a sense, a kind of like a bracketed, privileged community college would be set up. So uh, I was actually asked to develop the um, language curriculum you know, for this new community college. I was approached by one of the founding deans and so on. So I... Uh, I knew that uh, this was a, a very um, this was a very fraudulent operation because uh, instead of improving uh, higher education, what uh, CUNY is interested in doing is uh, producing showcases that it can circulate as like how wonderful we are. We have the Macaulay Honors College, and it's producing uh, elite showcases while it allows the mass experience to degenerate. So I had to think a lot about it. So I eventually sent a message to the dean. I said, look, all right, I'll do it if you promise that, we, that all the faculty will be full-time and we won't use any adjunct labor and so on. And, of course, they wouldn't make that promise. So I didn't take part in it. But I thought that I couldn't take part in developing anything that was going to, like, uh, you know, produce more adjunct crisis and so on. Then also in the uh, four C's uh, about 12 years ago, uh, I, I founded the, um, well, in the 90s, I founded uh, this working class um, group with some other folks, and uh, we did various projects along the way. And then um, I asked folks to join me in a circulating petition to set up a special uh, commission to investigate the adjunct crisis in the four C's. And I, we spent the whole year collecting lots and lots of signatures, and I called uh, estimable colleagues, uh, you know, highly esteemed colleagues to join us in the push. And uh, some wonderful people like Linda Flower and Peter Elbow both joined on. And uh, then we, uh, we handed the petition in, and that was the year 2002. And both Peter Elbow and Linda Flower came to uh, the business meeting on Saturday morning to speak in favor of this uh, commission to investigate and to do something about the adjunct hiring. And uh, we, we caught the, uh, essentially the conservative executive committee off guard by surprise. And because we demonstrated broad support, you know, among the, you know, high status folks, uh, they had to acknowledge it. And they asked me to chair 
they, they, they agreed to this commission, they asked me to chair it. So I began chairing it, and this table we're sitting at now uh, was our first meeting. Uh, and uh, I could pick the people I wanted, really wonderful people joined the, the commission. But the four C's then refused to budget even one dollar for our operation. So uh, we got no budget, we got no uh, clerical help, we got no institutional organizational help whatsoever. So uh, we, all, we financed the commission on our own. That is, uh, I invited the whole commission to come to my house, and I fed them for the weekend here. And two or three of them slept in my house here, and then I got cheap uh, motel rooms elsewhere. And they, these folks were just wonderful. They paid their own transportation. They paid for their own hotel, uh, motel here. And we met for two or three days to come up with a program to eject, to, for the adjunct crisis. We came up with a program. We decided that we wanted to hold a, um, a, uh, a, uh, an a, a conference on the adjunct crisis in the spring or early um, summer that would bring uh, all the um, groups organizing labor together, as well as uh, representative groups from all the disciplines, like the uh, sociologists, the historians, you know, all the, f all the f disciplines that use a lot of adjuncts and so on. So we, I put this proposal to the four Cs, and um, they, they said, absolutely not. They, they weren't gonna, they would not give me a dollar to finance this. So I, I, had, I had called up colleges. I had looked up, you know, where we might have low in, low cost sites. You know, colleges we could rent the dorms in summer, whatever, whatever. And um, they uh, eventually they refused. And uh, I, I know this will sound unbelievable to many people who hear it, but I eventually got the answer that um, the four C's is afraid that fights will break out at this conference, and they are not insured for any violence and injuries that occur. <laughs> I, I'm still astonished when I say it out loud. And I, I could only answer, I said, you're absolutely right. Writing teachers are very violent people. We really have a lot to worry, and I, I think you're right not to support it. So they refused to give me any money. So then I said, well, I'm going to have to take these people to court. So I then started searching. We had no budget. I started searching for a lawyer to sue them. And I went around, and I was searching for pro bono. Nobody would take this on pro bono. So then I finally found a lawyer who said that for a $3,000 retainer that she would uh, initiate the lawsuit. So look, uh, it's a lot of money, and none of us had $3,000 lying around, so I had to decide that I was just defeated. And then when I came back the next year to uh, the Four Cs, uh, the head of the, um, the Four Cs, uh, the conference program of that year, suddenly announces that she's established a special um, uh, writing writing uh, program commission that's going to reward the writing programs that have exemplary practices. So uh, she announced this at a meeting of all the commission chairs where I had the right to be because I was the head of this commission. So I said, wait a minute. I said, that's my commission. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to investigate writing programs and decide who's what and who's what. And she said, no, this is something different. I said, absolutely not. You're financing a competitor. And I disagree with it, blah, blah, blah. We got into an argument. It was embarrassing. And it was unresolved. And I couldn't get an answer, so I knew that uh, this was the end. And I uh, then wrote a letter of resignation, and I left the commission because given our political resources in that organization at that moment, we couldn't, go, we couldn't get anywhere. So I had to leave. I was very sad and very unhappy because I loved the people I was working with, and I thought this adjunct crisis just had to be addressed. And I just was going crazy figuring out, like, how do you do it? How do you get... And it still isn't, it still isn't uh, addressed. So without a question, we are uh, exploiting part-time teachers. We're abusing our graduate students and our adjuncts. And we are providing um, inferior uh, teaching and learning to all the students uh, who take their courses. And, uh, and finally, that uh, we are accepting uh, that our field, composition and rhetoric, will, uh, will be a colony of English departments, literary departments forever, and that we will be a sub-professional status. So the answer started at Duke and other places is, oh, let's hire them as lecturers. They'll teach 4-4 on a full-time contract with no guaranteed renewal, and we'll give them a minimum health plan. And so they'll teach 4-4, they'll teach too much composition with classes too large, and they'll never be given faculty status, and they won't be given long-term appointment or no chance for tenure. So they will be permanently an underclass in the university. And this is disgraceful. It's disgusting. And uh, I, I'm, I opposed it from the beginning, and I'm just hoping something emerges. Like this is you know, what I did with the, this commission in 2000, 2002. 
follows on what Sharon Crowley did in 1987 with the Wyoming resolution. And so, so it's not the first time in the uh, four C's, uh, the Conference on College Composition and uh, Communication is, has a lot of experience in how to frustrate any attempt to change the labor conditions of the field. And uh, I resent it. So when you talk about your experiences in that committee, and it makes me think about whether or not to work, or what does it mean to work within institutions and for institutional change, and I think that your story about what happened at Four Cs makes a lot of sense to me in some of the, you know, trying to force institutional changes that I've been a part of or collectively at, at Syracuse University and other places where, um, and I think the phrase inclusion delusions are, is something that is important lately of, of people creating meeting spaces and forums, um, but then I think the folks in power who create them knowing that we're just going to waste time and frustrate people and burn them out and then um, uh, give them no resources, for example. And then, uh, you know, people will be so frustrated that they just uh, drop it or something. And um, thinking, you know, about faculty members or graduate students who are writing teachers that are listening to this because they're interested in mm -hmm. not just teaching um, an essay, but also if they're interested in social change. I guess some advice, you know, about encountering their institutions or do you do your political work on the side and not even get it involved in the work of your department and your university. Mm -hmm. So I guess some ad advice for that person yeah. that's listening because mm -hmm. they want to know how to make, do the work of social justice and they're a writing teacher. Okay. Uh, look, um, I, uh, I spent a lot of hours uh, on trying in at least Two different situations trying to address the uh, the adjunct crisis, and uh, I I haven't figured it out yet. And um, so um, after uh, the four C's uh, more or less expelled me in 2004, um, what I do is is that uh, I look around for what's called an opening to the left. Like uh, said before, with Paulo Freire's notion of a situated pedagogy. There are times and places where you can do more and times and places when you can do less. So although we're all interested in questioning the status quo and, and uh, pro uh, propelling social justice, in some places we can get farther, in some places we won't get far at all. So we, uh, we have to make uh, an uh, evaluation. What do we want to accomplish where? And uh, as Paulo Ferry called it, the archaeology of the, uh, of the institution. That is, what are the forces arrayed against us? And what are the forces that we can mobilize for us? Uh, what are the openings and what are the closings? So that's, without question, that has to be, you know, an um, undertaking of anyone who's interested in social justice or, or changing. Okay, so I reached a really bad dead end, and I was uh, really unhappy for a long time. Uh, when I left the conference, uh, I just was sad for days because I loved working with the people and I thought that we, we really couldn't continue. Uh, so what I do is, uh, you know, I took some time, I recovered, and then I started looking around for a different opening to the left. All right, what I've been doing uh, for the last 10 years, I, I've been doing a lot of local work here. I, um, I work, uh, I, I advocate against the real estate developers in town at the planning commission. So. I go and speak when they're trying to convert uh, our parks into condos and so on. I go there and, and try to stop. I'm, you know, I join other people, I'm not alone. So I belong to a group called Friends of Anderson Park, which we started 10 years ago, about the park nearby, where we are uh, park advocates and park stewards, and we're, we also undertake uh, going to the planning commission and the city council to uh, talk against every uh, whenever the developers want to build high-rises on the park and so on. So that's, I add, that's, an, that's an opening where we're able to have some effect. In addition, I've been uh, working in the local public schools against uh, the testing, you know, standardized testing and so on. And we had forced on us here a, a graduate of the unaccredited Broad Foundation, what we call a Brody, who was secretly hired by our renegade Board of Education. And it took us two and a half years of constant opposition at the local level to force her out. So, you know, it's, it's not very visible outside of town, but it sure is a lot of time locally to make that, to make that happen. Uh, the other thing is, is that um, I think what's, uh, uh, I got involved in the uh, helping at the margins of the Occupy movement that he, uh, emerged in 2011, 
And because I'm raising a little boy, I can't sleep out there at night on the concrete. Also, because of my age, I'll sleep on the concrete. I'll be as hard as the concrete in the morning. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I, I have to find what can someone my age, you know, raising children can do. So um, we, we had a fundraiser here in town. We raised money, and also I raised a carload. I, they, uh, Occupy used to publish online. They published so much online, but they used to publish what do we need at the site. And they publish a list of things they need. They need tents, they need tarpaulins, they need warm winter clothing, they need this and that. And right. So, we, uh, so I, we had a fundraiser and um, I ferried uh, a carload of equipment from their list to them. They had a depot there where we dropped it off. I took Paulo, my son with me, he was seven or eight then. And uh, then we hung out there for the day. I also did a couple of teach-ins on site. Uh, there were so many teach-ins happening at once, and there were one or two groups that wanted something uh, on the education crisis. I came there and did one on, on site, and so on. Uh, so I've been in. I think that was a very important opening to the left. And while I couldn't be involved every day, I did. You know, I, I thought that's a place that's worth worth being. And uh, then uh, um, lately, I've been uh, spending a lot of time uh, on the opt-out movement, which I think is a very important opening to the left. Uh, it's very, it's a very contradictory moment. There's a, it moves in several directions at once. But um, every morning I wake up and I, I keep in touch with the parent opt-out movements in three states: in Colorado, New Mexico, and Florida, and sometimes upstate New York. They er, all these state groups, these parents in different states have like, uh, they're on webs. They have web logs, you know, they put on, and they're all posting ferociously every morning. So I wake up and there's 200 emails in my, and I have to run through them and uh, I participate in their conversations with them. And because I'm an education scholar and I've read a lot, uh, and these are all very smart uh, people, parents who have been to college, have a lot of uh, whatever talent and so on, uh, I'm able, like questions come up and I'm able to post about the history of testing. So I'm able to have like an online pedagogy, an online critical pedagogy where I know about the history of testing. I know about uh, finance, public finance. I know about the the K-12, and I know about who's behind whom and so on. So I'm able to like post, um, you know, um, long messages that address things that are coming up in all the conversations. So I f I'm, it's, it feels good to be of some use to have like an intellectual role where. Um, uh, I'm welcome, and so on. And then one of the group, the New Mexico group, actually uh, asked me to do a, um, a, a seminar, what they call it on Zoom, or whatever, if you know what that technology is, where they did a statewide seminar uh, for two hours. Um, they asked me to give, a sp to give a brief introductory talk, and then the folks online there would uh, ask questions. Then we had a dialogue for about two, two hours. So I did that with them about a few weeks ago. And then somebody who works on cable TV came here, and uh, they uh, they videotaped a section on the education crisis, which they're going to put on cable TV in Manhattan. So what, you know, like uh, I'm looking for what I call the openings to the left, okay? And those are places that um, that are more promising than the other. It means more or less that um, that not all of the injustices in society are equally vulnerable to intervention. It means that we, that we have to look around for where we are given uh, the power we have. Paulo Freire used to say it this way. He says, Paulo Freire said, you cannot use a power you don't have. Okay. So then the next question, of course, is, well, what power do we have? And where do we have that power and how do we deploy it? And so that's what I mean by the opening to the left. And so those things are on my mind. For young teachers now, I think it's... Um, it's uh, uh, there, there are things that are valuable to do. Like, for example, when protest movements emerge on campus, like with the Black Lives Matters or with the um, thing about Missouri lately, it's really important to have a local activist group able to sponsor a forum or a, um, a rally of some kind to put the local place on the map of this, this activity. In addition, <clears throat> making a community connection from the campus, and uh, this is where community literacy projects and uh, publishing publication projects inside the community, working with local groups, really, really matters. I think that's a very important because we bring things to them, assets that they may not be able to find on their find on their own. And there may be other kinds of campaigns through which um, campus uh, folks uh, can be very useful. For example, a um, a kitchen, a soup kitchen, and raising. Um, 
raising uh, resources uh, for that is is very useful to establish as many contacts as um, as possible with uh, uh, off campus. And one of the folks who wrote a really wonderful book on this was Linda Flowers' book on community literacy and the rhetoric of public engagement. She um, it she, she takes her students from Carnegie Mellon into the inner city of Pittsburgh and develops rhetorical projects based on the uh, the uh, needs of the local community, which I think is just wonderful. And that's something we can do locally that doesn't re require the, uh, you know, uh, I told uh, Linda once, I said that the farther you're away from power, the more options you have. The closer you get to the center of power, the more punishment and surveillance you're under. So uh, that I was telling her that because uh, I said, when you work in the community, you're farther from power. And so you're under less surveillance, so the options to do things differently are, are more, more open. The closer you get to campus and to the institution and the departments and the deans and so on, the more eyes are on you. And in a period like this that is so punitive and conservative, that's uh, especially why uh, moving, to the, moving out into the margins into community literacy is a very sensible project. Um, so is there anything we haven't asked that you might want to add um, in terms of critical ped pedagogy? Um, how do you use your background to inform the work, um, the classroom, the potential of the classroom, or anything that we haven't asked? Uh, I think it's extremely important for um, uh, teachers interested in social justice and in uh, critical teaching not to get isolated and work alone. Uh, Paulo Freire said this, he says, you cannot confront the lion alone. That uh, if you're going to hunt lions and face uh, very dangerous uh, folks, that you must do it in a group. And so the first thing that's, that, that's important to do is to find allies and colleagues with whom you can converse and uh, collaborate on different projects. Do not get isolated as the, uh, the radical crank who uh, is always um, alone in raising uh, questions. Uh, that's very important to do. Uh, and the, um, the next thing is, is that um <coughs> try, try to um, get connected to the, uh, the, the, um, the history of, of this work. Uh, that is, like a lot of folks have been, uh, you know, asking the same questions for a lot of years. And uh, some of us write uh, about uh, what works and what didn't work and so on. So it's very important to sort of uh, read about uh, the long history so that we, uh, we don't feel as if uh, we have to invent the wheel. That's, that's very uh, disempowering to feel that you're alone and that you have to start from s scratch. The other thing is, is that there are uh, right now some very, very good uh, social justice education conferences around the country. I know we have one in Chicago, we have one in the Pacific Northwest, we have one in San Francisco, I think there might be one in LA, I know there's one in New York City. Anyhow, uh, you can travel. There, there are one close enough to, to where you are. Go there and you will meet people that you're very happy to hang out with and you will go to sessions that are very, very useful. Uh, so that's another thing is to, to avoid to avoid uh, isolation. The more alone we feel, the less powerful we feel to make a difference. So connecting is actually job number one. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, we did it. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, and thank you to Iris Short for letting us have this conversation. The co-executive producers for This Rhetorical Life are Carrie Ann Soto and Ben Kiebrick, with additional production and editing from Kate Siegfried, Yanir Rodriguez, and Tamara Isak.